I've just arrived in Ardfern on the west coast of Scotland. It's nine o'clock in the morning, but there's not yet much light. We're closing in on the shortest day of the year. There's December drizzle falling down, and the sky above is a particularly unspectacular shade of grey. I did see a barn owl, though, perched on the roadside fence. Probably the only upside of leaving the house at 5am. Moments like that can really lift the spirits on days like today. My friend Jack says there's always a reason to go outside. A mantra my wife and I try to live by, and glimpsing that pearly white owl reaffirms it. Now, when I first got in touch with Sea Wilding, I had great plans for this podcast. I envisage squeezing into a wetsuit, dipping beneath the waves, and seeing this important marine ecosystem for myself. That was in September. It's now December, and just looking at the sea is making me feel cold. I might just add a few splashes when I come to the edit, and hope none of you notice. I've travelled three hours down the notorious winding roads of the west, nursing the coastline as it ebbs and flows, following the dramatic peninsulas and sea locks that frequent this part of Scotland. Think Norwegian fjords, but with more potholes on the roads. I know this area fairly well. It hosts one of my favourite nature reserves, a tiny fragment of temperate rainforest, a lush ecosystem dripping with diversity. But I'm not here to see the forests, at least not those found on land. It's marine forests I'm here to find out about today. Whilst I'm well-versed in Scotland's terrestrial rewilding story, my knowledge of what goes on beneath the waves is a different kettle of fish. I couldn't start my trip to the continent without paying these guys a visit. It's a story of carbon-capturing seagrass, water-filtering oysters, and the community that have come together to restore both. I'm James Shooter, host of the Rewild podcast, and this is Sea Wilding. Why is this contraption? The green. This is going to save the world, e-bikes. This is amazing. What is it? Just a trailer? It's just a trailer, yeah. I had a... So... Cycling up the hill towards me is Philip Price, a talented wildlife photographer and friend of mine who now works for Scottish marine rewilding charity, Sea Wilding. Philip's always been a huge advocate for sustainability and he's recently swapped his car for an electric pedal bike and custom-made trailer. It looks a bit rickety to me, but he tells me he churns through around 6,500 kilometres a year, transporting everything from boxes of oysters to his paying photography clients that are strapped to the back. It's an alfresco experience, whatever the load. Never seen an otter in that stretch before. I usually see them up here. <laughs> On the bike, a white-tailed yeah. eagle and an otter. And then a sparrowhawk comes out in front of me, getting mobbed by a buzzard. I'm like, what the... I don't believe you. Oh, I can believe it, yeah. I was like, that's so funny, you're going to be spitting mad. I am, of course. The art of slowing down. An impressive haul for a ten-minute cycle. But the coastline here holds many treasures. And whilst driving ahead, I picked up a party of Carmenida rafting in the bay, along with a red-breasted meganza diving for fish and a nosy grey seal watching me closely with its big puppy dog eyes. If you're feeling adventurous, it's touch and go, so yeah. it's how adventurous you feel. It's safe, it's just, will be a bit splashy as I've got a tiny I, wee boat. I always like a, a flan that says, it's touch <laughs> and go, it is safe. It's but... safe. I mean, you won't die, you <laughs> might get a bit wet. I mean, that's always a bonus. Yeah, exactly. But, um, Philip's walking me down to meet Danny Renton, 
the CEO and founder of Sea Wilding. We walked to his seaside body, a basic building traditionally built as a shelter for estate workers. He's yeah. just got a come. On, he's it, just got a wood burning stove it's, with it's a back in here. Yeah, and I fired it up last night. Oh, it's got amazing. Water. Danny's been renovating the dilapidated body, not least by putting a roof on it. He's been living here for two years now and only just managed to get hot water. It's a small space, but it's been made really cosy with a big, beautiful stove, mezzanine floor and exposed copper pipes running up the walls. It's the kind of place city dwellers might pay hundreds a night for when they fancy a quirky retreat in the countryside. He and the local community of Ardfern straddle the shoreline of Loch Craignish in Argyll. As a community, uh, we're very interested in the sea loch here and the health and the biodiversity of the sea loch. And in living memory, that biodiversity has really declined. And this sea loch is typical of any sea loch in the West Coast. It's got aquaculture in here. It's got a very busy marina. It's got some farms with a lot of nitrate runoff. So it's got all those sort of negative drivers. When deciding on how to give something back to the waters that have provided so many invaluable resources, the community identified two priority marine features they could do something about. Native oysters and seagrass meadows. Specifically, the European flat oyster, Austria edulis, and common eelgrass, Zosta marina. Most marine conservation is about campaigning to stop things from leaving things alone. And you don't really get listened to, to be honest especially as a community. So we thought, let's get into the water and start doing something beneficial. This is what really excites me about rewilding. It avoids focusing too much on trying to stop a negative. It's about being proactive and positive and creating something beneficial for the environment. And I find it even more empowering when a community comes together and decides to take it on themselves. Danny's connection to the sea involves a childhood of summers spent on Tyree the most westerly isle of the Inner Hebrides of Scotland. He'd spend two and a half months with his family, fishing in an old wooden boat. They'd catch halibut, whiting, cod and lobsters, just a mile offshore. But in his lifetime, as with much of the natural world, the abundance and diversity of life has all but disappeared. In the 1980s, that, the Scarnish Bank was then dredged. Uh, all that local fishery disappeared, and that was for local people. And I've seen that all the way around the West Coast. I'm a sailor, so I see that as well. And so my interest in what we're doing here is really informed by, by my own awareness that the biodiversity is gone. And no one's really talking about it. We talk about the claps and fish stocks. We talk about the fact that there are no trawlers in Oban anymore. They're just scallop dredgers and there's some creel boats. Um, and, we, and we talk about the fact that, you know, that, that white fish stocks are now commercially extinct, but no one is really talking about how to change it. And that's what I was really interested in about. And from community level, we wanted to look at our own water body and say, what can we do here? One of the problems with the sea is that for most people, life beneath the waves is out of sight, out of mind. Most people would notice a forest felled close to their home, whereas few would see the telltale signs of the seabed in distress. But if you talk to some of the dive, the old divers here, and those people in their 70s who've been diving here since the 1960s, they would say that the west coast of Scotland looked, used to look like the Red Sea. Maybe not as colourful, but certainly in terms of biodiversity. And so whilst I suppose it's really sad that that has happened in such a short space of time, 
actually for the restoration point of view it's quite important to still have that human connection of people that are still around you know actual memories that people can say to you look i was there 50 60 years ago and i i know that this was different it's really important and and in, over recent months we've been interviewing um people who have been here for for many years of their life and who've had a connection with the sea and uh, we were talking to a 90-year-old the other day who was talking about going out during the war in wooden boats just at the head of the lock um, to, to, to ring net cuddy, which is sort of young pollock, safe, that sort of thing. And he was saying the challenge was, was not to sink the boat when you came back. There were so many fish. He talks about looking out over the side of the boat and seeing shoals of herring. And he said it was like... It was like a concept of infinity, the glittering of the water. He said he'd never seen so many fish. You could almost walk on the water. Historical accounts offer an insight into the scale of what we've lost. These native oysters were food for the masses, and their abundance in Scottish seas meant an entire industry was built on the back of them. Throughout the 17th and 18th centuries, these mollusks were sold as simple bar snacks. I'm not sure I fancy the idea of a hangover after a night of ale and oysters, but each to their own. In the 1790s, as many as 30 million were harvested a year from the Firth of Forth, just outside of Edinburgh. By 1882, the Edinburgh Oyster Hall was down to just 55,000. A decade later, and it was just 1,200. In 1957, the famous oyster population that fed the residents of Scotland's capital were declared locally extinct. Here in Loch Craignish, the empty shells from a bygone era still scatter the shoreline shining a light on this important food source for the coastal communities of the past. The oysters you now see being enjoyed by fancier folk in the champagne bars of Edinburgh Airport are actually Pacific rock oysters, Magellana gigas. These are non-native to Scotland and were originally introduced to farm, but they have escaped captivity in numerous places and are now considered invasive. They grow fast and are fairly indestructible. One of the reasons why it's allowed to happen is that it is the understanding is they don't spawn, they don't breed in temperatures beneath around 22 to 23 degrees. But with climate change, the problem is in the southwest of England, down in Cornwall and places, they are breeding and they are now sort of um, taking over ecosystems and habitats. Oysters are a true ecosystem engineer. Now, they might not be as cute as a beaver or as iconic as a wolf, but for the seabed, oysters are the heroes. The first service they provide is water filtration. And it's said that the North Sea um, used to be had these dense oyster beds that went for miles and miles and miles. And I've heard that the North Sea was once blue as opposed to the pea green that it is now. And that's due to the filtration um, capacities of the oysters. A single adult oyster can filter around 200 litres a day. Now imagine what those 30 million oysters were doing for the waters around Edinburgh. In fact, you don't have to imagine. A quick calculation tells us they had the ability to clean six billion litres a day. The second thing about them is, <clears throat> if you get a native oyster bed, um, it's, a, it's a complex 3D habitat with native oysters piled on top of each other. You might get, you know, 100 oysters in, in one square metre. And you can imagine what that's like, all the nooks and crannies. So then you get all that other marine life moving in and, in, in, and, and coexisting with the native oysters. And certainly we put down around 300,000 on the seabed so far and we put them down in you know, large numbers on top of each other. And you go back to those sites now and snorkel around them. There's lots going on, it's exciting. These underwater cities also have the potential to store carbon. 
The complex structures act as a filter and draw down organic carbon from the water column and trap it in the sediment. Left undisturbed, these reefs can act as important marine carbon sinks. This species has remained virtually unchanged for at least 10 million years. So you would have thought they'd be pretty good at surviving. Yet they've all but disappeared. As with most things, it's down to human pressure. If you get people picking at a population over many, many years, the recruitment can't keep up. Simply put, the animal can't reproduce fast enough to replenish healthy stocks. The other thing is, um, is, is um, mechanical disturbance, dredging, for example. They were dredged in the Firth of Forth, they were dredged in the North Sea. So they were basically those populations were wiped out. And the other thing is disease. There is, there is, um, there is a parasite called Benamia, which is, I believe came from the continent. Oysters have always been moved around. And it came from there, it's been around for, you know, for decades. And uh, we don't have it here in Loch English, but there are other places on the West Coast that do have it. And, you know, those can be, that can be, you can get mass mortality events as a result of those sort of things. Many parts of our marine ecosystems aren't functioning as they should. Overexploitation has been an ongoing threat, with fishing technologies becoming increasingly efficient. This efficiency has sadly led to devastating consequences for populations of fish, crustacean and mollusk alike. We need to look to places like Norway that have managed it really well and where you can go off in your boat and you can catch a cod and a halibut within sight of the shore with your own rod and say, how did you do it? Now let's try and do that here. And it means everybody working together to say, let's, let's manage, manage low-impact fishing, sustainable fishing, let's give things a chance to recover so that in 10, 20 years, there's more opportunity for everybody. Closer to home, Another Scottish coastal community has proved the positive effects of leaving an area of seabed alone. After 13 years of campaigning, Scotland's first no-take zone was established in 2008 on the Isle of Arran. It may have been small, at just over two and a half square kilometres, but the results are hard to argue with. In just over a decade, researchers have found that the size, fertility and abundance of lobsters and scallops are significantly better within the no-take zone and seabed biodiversity has increased by 50%. This benefits not just the wildlife, but creates jobs in a more sustainable fishing industry, helped along by recovering stocks spilling out from the protected area. I personally don't believe that we should be dredging for scallops within metres of the shoreline. There's a marine protected area down at Loch Fyne, just, you know, half an hour away. The other day I was down there um, watching a uh, bottom trawler within metres of the shore in a marine protected area, dragging the bottom, and up comes a lot of seaweed. That should not be allowed. It's just a name, it's a paper park. Only four to 5% of those marine protected areas are actually protected against destructive fishing, which is what I've been talking about. The rest is just a free for all. So it's, a no it's nonsense, it, it's so, and we should stop peddling this nonsense. There is talk in the future of highly protected marine areas. That's exciting, it's 10% of the Scottish waters to be highly protected marine areas. I do find it hard to accept the premise of highly marine protected areas. They sound great, but surely there wouldn't be a need for highly marine protected areas if marine protected areas were properly protected in the first place. There are still relic populations of native oysters in Scotland, but their locations are kept secret for obvious reasons. Baseline surveys by Sea Wilding found a population of around 200 in their local loch. Whilst they may be breeding a little, there is not enough activity for this population to be considered self-sustaining, or better yet, increasing. Over millions of years, 
oysters have developed a fascinating life cycle that's evolved to take advantage of the natural rhythms of Mother Nature. First of all, they're protandric, meaning they have the nifty ability of being able to change sex from male to female as they mature. The males release their sperm into the water column on a neap tide, a moderate tide that allows it to float around for longer to find a female that will take it in. After fertilisation, the females release the larvae on a spring tide, where the gravitational pull of the sun is added to that of the moon, making for a more extreme tide. This allows the larvae to disperse a long way before they settle. They have just one chance to identify a suitable site using their bisal thread, strong silky fibres that superglue them to the substrate. Reproduction can be quite prolific if there are enough sexually mature oysters left in a population. Whilst numbers are low, sea wilding is bypassing the pressures of the wild by controlling this process in captivity. So the hatchery has our brood stock, um, that's, that's some uh, small oysters that we, we've, uh, that we've um, managed to get from this lock and from Loch Melfort. They're tested for disease in advance and so all the biosecurity protocols are there. Um, they have around 80 of them. Um, they then um, they get them to breed using a combination of temperature um, and algae and they're very good at it. And, uh, and then the challenge is, is once the larvae is released, is, is, then, is then to get it to grow, and all that's done in the hatchery. When the oysters are received from the hatchery, they're five months old, weigh a gram, and are just 10 millimetres in size. They're then taken to mature over the summer months, in floating cages where they can binge feed on phytoplankton, whilst avoiding the risk of being predated by crabs or starfish. By the time they're done, they've packed on another nine grams in weight and are ready to be cast out onto the seabed. Having seen pictures of thousands of oysters being thrown back into the sea, I was half hoping that it would be an easier reintroduction process than terrestrial examples, but Danny tells me otherwise. You can take a scallop dredge within metres of shore here and destroy an ecosystem that's been here for thousands of years, but if you want to then try and restore some elements of that ecosystem, it will take you months and months and months of permissions and licensing and consent. Whilst the legislation for species translocations is there for good reason, to avoid such issues as the spreading of disease, you would hope that it would be as easy to get permission to fix a piece of nature as it was to break it in the first place. It's my humble opinion that we need to massively reduce the red tape required for nature restoration. Yes, we need to do it right, but as the old saying goes, we shouldn't let perfect be the enemy of good. Well, so far we reckon around 40% are surviving on the seabed, um, which is good, which is really good. Um, but the ultimate measure of success is that we want to see them spatting and recruiting and, and becoming self-sustaining. Uh, we're only in year three. We have yet to see lots of young oysters, you know, hanging on to shell. Um, but that could, we, we, that's really as a function of age in, in that, you know, that this year they should, be, they should be beginning to breed. We'd like also to be able to swim through the water and say, oh, we're seeing other species in numbers probably as a result of what we've been doing. We also want to be working with all the stakeholders under the umbrella of a demonstration research marine protected area to form a new type of management for this sort of thing, where the community is completely involved, where biodiversity and the health of the sea lock is absolutely paramount, but we also have lots of new green jobs as a result of it, sustainable fishing, lots of exciting jobs which are, which are rooted in this whole experiment. I'm meeting back up with Philip now, as he had a plan to squeeze me into his tiny little rowing boat so I could see the oyster nursery for myself. 
Thankfully, it's a little too choppy for that. So we've upgraded to Sea Wilding's electric boat instead. It takes us 20 minutes to get round the bay with the motor. So I can only imagine I would have been here for around three days if we'd been rowing to the site instead. The small islands we pass still boast significant numbers of hazel and oak, two species that make up the temperate rainforest that should cover much more of this part of Scotland. I picture them adorned in their vibrant spring green or autumnal orange, but there's still beauty in the naked winter structure. As we reach the nursery, we slowly track between two lines of floats, the only hint from the surface that anything is going on here. A young cormorant is using one as a perch to rest between fishing trips watching us carefully to see what we're up to. Philip leans over the side and hauls out the first cage where the young oysters are working the magic. Oh wow, I'll move this. So that's there. It's one of our, oh look at that. It's a little muscle that's grown in there. <laughs> So you often get, you get like little fish hanging out in here as well. Yeah. These are our oysters. Wow. They're very cool, but this is why oysters are so amazing. Look at the shell on that. Yeah. You see the, you know, the keel worms. That's a baby saddle oyster. <laughs> they get barnacles on them, they get all sorts on them. So it's a mini ecosystem in yeah, itself, exactly. basically. That's before they've even done anything else. So these are probably about the size of the inner part of your hand, and they're probably what, um, they're probably two years old or something, two and a half years old. They grow really well here. But uh, I mean, you can see the life on that one there. Look yeah, at all the different organisms on there. It's incredible, isn't it? So what are these long... So they're these keel worms. Keel worms. Yeah, so there's a little worm, there's a little red worm in there. And they just deposit the carbon as a kind of protection. So it's, a, it's, a, it's like another type of shell, really. Wow. I didn't even know that existed, to be honest. Yeah, so. that's a baby saddle oyster there. <laughs> that's more cool. cool. It's very cool. There's probably more life in this little basket of oysters than I've seen all morning on the land. And these are just a few handfuls floating in the water column. Imagine what an entire reef could hold. It really puts in perspective the abundance of life we're missing and could bring back. We cruise away from the oysters and over a mosaic of light and dark patches in the waters beneath. The darker areas are the fragments of seagrass that remain in this sea lock. This is the second focus area for sea wilding and how Philip initially got involved in this charity. He started out as a volunteer on the Oyster Project, but when funding became available to do a pilot project on seagrass, he was employed part-time to work on the collection and processing of seed. Fast forward two years, and Philip's now working full-time across both the seagrass and oyster restoration work. So why does seagrass need attention? A recent study found that over 90% has disappeared from UK waters in the last century or two. And a lot of that would have been people walking through this weedy stuff and going, oh, that's a bit horrible, let's get rid of that. Philip admits to me that he probably used to be one of those people. Who wants their feet entangled by some slimy green stuff whilst enjoying a leisurely swim? And then I had my first snorkel experience in seagrass and oh my word, it is the best way I can describe it. If you can imagine your favourite, most beautiful spring or summer's day where, the med where a wildflower meadow is at its very best. So there's flowers, there's bees, there's butterflies everywhere. And then somehow you get to float across the top of that. That's what a seagrass meadow is like. Uh, and to be able to float across and there's sea anemones, there's peacock worms, which are these incredible flower-like red animals. There's fish everywhere. There's crabs crawling across the canopy of the, of the seagrass. It's like nothing else we have in Scotland. Where these marine meadows used to be, now only muddy sediment remains. 
It should be said that this isn't totally invaluable. Things like gobies and crabs are perfectly happy there. But when you put seagrass back, a raft of life returns. We found it's almost doubling the biodiversity by putting seagrass in. Um, and what other animals do you get? Well, you get all your young juvenile fish coming in because it's, it's a great habitat for them to feed and hide in. You get tiny little snails crawling up the seagrass, uh, little whelks and things like that. You get um, shellfish. We found scallops in the seagrass. It's a good protection for them. It means they don't get um, washed away and they can just embed themselves in there. You get dogfish in there hunting all the other small fish. We found dogfish just two days ago in the seagrass. Um, you get crabs eating the seed and, and cleaning the little whelks off the seagrass blades. They'll, they'll climb, literally they climb up the seagrass and eat all the food out of there. So it's a, it's a, it's a really, it's, it's like a forest. It's essentially going from a field to a forest. Greater pipefish are also found here. These bony, elongated fish have mimicked the grass's characteristics to blend in perfectly with the blades erupting from the seabed. Imagine the amount of seagrass that must once have existed to encourage a species to evolve to look exactly like it for protection. The creme de la creme of inhabitants, though, might be their cousin, the seahorse. Both short-snouted and long-snouted seahorses can be found amongst the underwater meadows of the south coast of England and Wales. Perhaps one day they will find their way up to these waters too, thanks to a newly established corridor of habitat flanking the entire west coast of the country. Now that's an exciting thought. We know pollution does hamper seagrass uh, growth and can also weaken it enough that you get wasting diseases as well. So um, that will certainly part, played a part. While most seagrass isn't in a depth where you get dredging and trawling, when dredges and trawlers come past, they create plumes of silt. That silt settles on the seagrass, and if that's happening a lot, that can stifle the growth to the point where it becomes weak and gets diseases again and can die off. So that's another reason. In many places around the coastline, probably not so much here, but um, when people would walk down to the beach, they wouldn't want this weedy stuff around that was a barrier between them and swimming. So that then meant it would all get dredged out to make the beaches cleaner. Um, little did we know how amazing this habitat was back then. So to some degree, it's our, <laughs> one of our poorest qualities in the UK, our kind of desperation for neatness is partly to explain it, is it? That's a very good point, actually. Yeah, and it's, yeah. I suppose it's, it's not even like um, mowing your lawn to within an inch of its life, it's actually ripping that turf out and chucking it away. Yeah, it's that, it's that need to kind of control stuff. The picture is universally bad around Europe and Scotland. Um, I would say Europe are ahead of us in that restoration process and I would also say Europe's attitude is ahead of us and that's quite important because in Europe it's a crack on let's do this attitude whereas here it's a it's a little bit more yeah we need to crack on but let's let's do a bit of science and let's check this out and let's make sure the genetics are okay and or let's 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 make sure we have all the regulations or oh, we can't do it that way because the regulations say we can't you know and it's just like whereas in Europe it's much more well we want the seagrass back let's do it. I have, I have constant like, arguments with myself around this because I, I know that things need to be done right. Of course they do. You know, you need the science to back it up. But my God, we're slow, aren't we? You know, we, we, I think the be one of the best phrases around this kind of stuff is, is studying the subject to death. You know, it, whilst we're all trying to research it and see the very best, most perfect way of saving something, well, it's, it's gone by the time we figure out the perfect way. Yeah, I, th I, th I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head there. If we wanted to do things perfectly, we should have started 30 years ago. Seagrass is one of those habitats we really don't want to be delaying saving. The meadows act as a nursery ground for commercial fish species, such as herring and cod. The shoals of juvenile fish that would frequent the safety of seagrass are now suffering in abundance as adults. 
those commercial species have gone. If you look at the catch records, once we started opening up um, damaging our seabed within the three nautical mile that we, the, the, the barrier that we used to have, um, once we opened that up and they started damaging the seabed in those nursery areas, all those commercial species crashed. So, you know, 25, 30 years ago, we'd be catching thousands of tons of cod, thousands of tons of whiting, thousands of tons of herring. That's all gone now. The three mile limit was in place for almost a century and protected many of Scotland's inshore seas from harmful bottom trawling. The ban was lifted in 1984, however, once again allowing trawlers into the nursery grounds. A study for the Scottish government suggested reimposing the ban could create over 2,500 jobs and at least an extra billion pounds of additional income over the next two decades thanks to recovering fish stocks. We now know the fish aren't coming back, in part because the seagrass is gone. But why isn't the seagrass coming back? So a lot, a lot, a lot of uh, rewilding happens naturally. Like if you stop grazing a field, eventually you're going to get trees coming back up. The problem with a lot of the things in the ocean is we've gone too far. So that critical mass that you need to be able to allow those species to expand, like seagrass, like oysters, we've gone below that critical mass now. So when the seagrass grows and, and, and chucks its seed out, uh, there's just not enough seed to counter the predation on the seed, we think. And also the meadows are so small that most of the seed just lies in the meadow or just around the edges. So there's not an opportunity for that mass of seed to cover great areas and keep that seagrass growing out. Whereas if you had hundreds of hectares of seagrass, the amount of seed in the environment would have been astronomical. And some of that would have survived, some of that would have become plants, and some of that would have grown into new meadows. Just like the oyster beds, seagrass meadows have an incredible ability to store carbon, up to 35 times faster than rainforests. The restoration of these underwater ecosystems has one tiny disadvantage over similar efforts on land. You can't breathe while you're doing it, at least not unaided. Getting enough people trained to snorkel and scuba dive to collect seed creates a bottleneck in the system. This means the landscape scale restoration required is much harder to achieve. And we're also looking at growing the grass in land-based nurseries because then you become more equivalent to a land-based uh, growing project because you can then breathe the air again you don't have to go underwater. So it just makes everything a lot quicker uh, and cheaper and easier. So if we can crack that, and we think we can because there's other people around the world also trying to, to solve a lot of the problems you get with it, then landscape scale should be, should be possible. What we're doing is at the moment we're using our main method, which is the, is the collecting seed and bagging method. And so basically what we do is in the summer when the seagrass is seeding, um, we go snorkeling at the moment and we swim around and we literally take off the stems that have the seed on them, put them in bags and then they get taken to our um, boat shed where we've got tanks and they get put in the tanks and they're sat there for a couple of months to allow the seed to drop off. Because if we let the seed drop off while it's in the ocean, we wouldn't be able to collect it because it then disappears. And then we can hoover the seeds out of the tank through a kind of panning process uh, and then we're, we're left with a bag of seeds. Those bags of seeds then get split up into groups of 50. 50 seeds go into an individual hessian sack. There's a little bit of sand in there to weight it down. That hessian sack gets tied and put back into the ocean and that's the protection. And that allows us to kind of spread the seed out as well. Up on the shores of Loch Craignish, plans are already underway to grow plants from seed in controlled circumstances. Both natural and artificial seawaters are being trialled to weigh up the advantages of local conditions versus closed systems where disease has no chance of getting in. Once this is figured out, it's hoped seagrass restoration will be allowed to progress at a much bigger scale. It's exciting to see marine rewilding exploring new ground 
and searching for innovation in its fight for wilder seas. This particular work has only moved forward thanks to the buy-in from the local community and their absolute dedication to the local environment. There was a general feeling within the community that things weren't quite right in the sea. You know, the, the, the land's very obvious. We know there's no wolves because there's no wolves. But you don't know what's under the water. And if you see the odd dolphin, is that good? Is that bad? Should there be hundreds of dolphins or should it be one dolphin? You know, we just don't know. Um, but there was a general feeling that the things people used to see just weren't here anymore. Uh, and the minute you start to think like that, then the ne obvious next step is, well, what can we do about it? And that's really what drove the community to get involved. And as a result, yeah, there's loads of things people get involved with. Um, the, the easiest thing is, is we do these oyster release days, which is a kind of community get-together, cake, coffee, uh, and then everyone grabs a bag of oysters, goes down at low tide and chucks the oysters in. And that means, you know, you're genuinely part of the rewilding story doing that. You're getting your hands dirty, you're chucking these oysters into the water, and then going back and, and in a year's time you'll see hopefully oyster reefs there. Surely the best reintroductions are the ones where you can get coffee and cake at the same time. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> we might move on to barbecue and beers hopefully at one point, but we're not quite there yet. The optimist in me thinks it's absolutely wonderful the community has come together, taken ownership of the situation, and are just getting on with the job. Yet, the pessimist in me couldn't help but think it's because they felt they had to. The people that arguably should be doing it, the government, aren't. So I was thrilled to hear from Philip that this isn't the case. In fact, 80% of the seagrass operations are funded through government grants. We do complain about legislation and, and regulation that's kind of stymied us a bit, and, and that needs to be addressed, um, particularly from the kind of Marine Scotland perspective. But what's really reassuring is governments are, the Scottish government is starting to put its money where its mouth is. There's, a, there's like the Nature Restoration Fund, there's another fund called SMEF that's coming up. So they, they, they are putting money up for this now, which is superb. The capacity for people to deliver on that is where the problem is, and that's why we need to start paying for people as well as, as projects. Why are we doing this? Well, what's, the, what's the overall objective? Well, my personal objective is I want to swim, like I said before, I want to swim for half an hour to an hour and still be in a seagrass meadow that wasn't there before. That's, that's when I know we're doing a good job. Um, and I want to be able to do that in multiple locations around Scotland. Uh, I also want to be able to swim around a, a kind of shingly beach and be weaving in and out of many, many oysters with the abundance of fish and the abundance of cleaning that those animals are doing so that the water is crystal clear around those bits uh, and see even 3D structures that are starting to get created with, with multiple layers of oysters. If you look at Scotland's terrestrial ecosystems, we're far behind the curve when it comes to rewilding in the rest of Europe. We're an island nation, and any species we want to return to these lands has to be a conscious decision, with a long drawn out process before it can even be attempted. We may no longer have lynx, bears or wolves roaming the glens anymore, but we do have the wolves of the sea. The Shetland Islands are fast becoming one of the best places on the continent to see orca, drawn to the bounty of blubbery seals there. The second largest fish in the world, the basking shark, congregates in the summer months around the Inner Hebridean islands of Col and Tyree. And even humpback whales are being seen more frequently, from the shores of Dunbar and Aberdeen on the east. With over 800 islands and 18,000 kilometres of coastline, Scotland has the potential to be a world leader for looking after its marine environment. Orcas are one thing, but if you mistreat the building blocks of the ecosystem, the big stuff won't stick around for long. And seemingly, neither will the smaller stuff. It really feels like we're on the cusp of an exponential increase in the return of seagrass meadows and native oyster beds, thanks to the passionate people at organisations like Sea Wilding. 
but it needs investment to bring in the results and legislation that protects the groundwork being done. Once the metrics of carbon are figured out, there will no doubt be a rush in the restoration of seagrass for the emerging offsetting market to utilise. And how much longer will we be able to ignore the water-filtering power of oysters working en masse? Both habitats having the added bonus of housing masses of young fish. I hope Philip realises his dream of swimming over a continuous stretch of oyster beds and seagrass meadows, with all the life they bring. It sounds like a magical place to swim. Perhaps on my return I'll even join him. As long as that return is in June, July or August. Definitely not December. I hope you enjoyed listening to episode two of the Rewild podcast, a truly fascinating tale from the marine world. You'll never look the same way at an oyster again. Thanks to Danny Renton and Philip Price of Sea Wilding for speaking with me on the shores of Loch Craignish. The music was by Andrew O'Donnell of Beluga Lagoon and the artwork was created by Gemma Shooter. Sea Wilding is a member of the European Rewilding Network, a collection of groundbreaking initiatives across the continent brought together by Rewilding Europe as part of a broader rewilding movement. This is an organisation making rewilding happen through positive action on the ground. Next month, we're leaving Scotland behind for our first episode from the continent. Join us for a behind-the-scenes look at the newest landscape in rewilding Europe's portfolio, Iberian Highlands. Catch you next time.